As our institute prepares for our upcoming Spring Symposia on May 29th, we wanted to revisit one of our talks from our symposia last fall. We covered the topic, Substance Use and the Workplace, where our speakers shared current knowledge and resources on substance use like addressing the nation's opioid epidemic, cannabis in the workplace, alcohol consumption, drug use disorders in the workplace, as well as a look into community initiatives. I'm going to now introduce our keynote speaker, Casey Chosewood, the excellent director of the Office for Total Worker Health at NIOSH, uh, which is part of CDC. And in his role, he promotes the protection and improvement of the safety, health, and well-being of workers around the world. And he also co-leads the NIOSH efforts to assist workers and organizations with issues around the opioid misuse and opioid-related overdose and deaths. He received his medical degree at the Medical College of Georgia and completed his residency in family medicine at the University of Connecticut. He received an MPH in health policy and management from Emory University's Roland School of Public Health in 2014. So with that, thank you very much, Casey, and welcome. So on behalf of NIOSH and CDC, we'd like to give you a little bit more information about the unfolding opioid overdose epidemic. And we'll speak a little bit more broadly about substance use in general and some of the challenges related to uh, substance use as it interacts with the workspace. This is a rapidly changing epidemic. And in many ways, we're sort of late to the game right? You probably know this, but the feds come into a situation, usually at the request of the state, right? Our constitution limits to some degree how proactive the federal government can be unless there are interstate challenges, certainly national defense. There's, you know, there's some things where we don't need state permission to intervene. But in general, in public health, we usually respond to state and local requests for assistance. And that certainly was the case with the opioid overdose crisis. So we'll talk a little bit about that and how certain pockets of the nation were the first to raise a red flag. Even though drug use and overdose has been part of the American experience for hundreds of years, there was something dramatic that changed on the scene where the rate of deaths, the quickness between initiating use and overdose death, when those things shifted rapidly. The types of drugs on the street today are not the types of drugs that your parents or grandparents would have experienced. They're far more dangerous, far more deadly. If you follow the news at all, you will hear at least once a week a drug seizure of enough fentanyl to kill millions and millions of people. I think just this week there was such a drug uh, find in Boston, right? And I think they named enough doses for 2 million overdose deaths in one actual capture. There are some people who estimate that for every one apprehended drug bust, there are you know, tens and tens of ones that, that are not apprehended or not. So this really is a changing issue. And we'll look from a number of different angles and hopefully save a little bit of time for questions as well. The other thing I say about um, our work uh, within NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, is that we're one of 10 centers within the overall CDC. So part of our job, obviously, is to put the safety and health of workers in the forefront. But we also have an obligation to influence the work of the other centers 
when it comes to improving the health and safety of workers, right? So it's not just what we can do with our dollars, our budget, which sometimes we believe is way too small, but it is what we can leverage from the other nine centers within CDC, how we can use our information and our expertise around working populations to say, hey, let's optimize the way we promote flu vaccination by looking at it through the lens of work, through the lens of workers and their challenges. So we work with the Infectious Disease Center, how we leverage our work with the Chronic Disease Center, perhaps the most rapidly growing part of CDC, how we can say to them, you know, workplaces are a great platform for getting your message out about health promotion. Workplaces are an extremely contributor to many of the burdensome challenges of chronic disease, right? It might surprise you to know that about one in five cases of cardiovascular disease, the most common killer of Americans, is felt to be work-related. One in five, 20% of workers, huge number of workers, 600, 700,000 people die a year of cardiovascular disease, one in five likely related to work. And you think, well, that's strange. I didn't think there were a lot of chemicals that caused heart disease. So what is it about work that makes people die at the end of their life or shortened life because of heart disease? We know that work is extremely important in helping determine your risks and those behaviors that contribute to those risks. There's some jobs that make you more likely to be a smoker than others. There's some jobs that absolutely predispose to diabetes. If you have a job that involves shift work, your risk of diabetes goes out the roof. There are many jobs that by their very nature and design guarantee that you will go home after a decade or two with significant obesity. Long haul truck drivers studied here at this center is a great example. There are many, many challenges related to work, working conditions, and the behaviors and risk factors that it sets us up for. Those take home benefits of poorly designed work, of poor quality work, are hugely important when it comes to the predictor of the major causes of death. This is my granddaughter, Lily. Uh, really why I get up every morning. If you are contemplating grandparenthood, I say go for it, okay? <laughs> Parenthood, on the other hand, uh, that's not an absolute. It, it's not all upside, but grandparenthood is absolutely all upside. So Lily is six years old now. I think this picture was maybe three years old and four years old. And Lily has quite a challenge in her life. She has a uh, brand new baby sister. So the princess, and that is her future job of choice, according to her. And I said, you know, there's not a lot of future in royalty. There are not a lot of job openings every year. So you might want to broaden your interest area when it comes to work. But she has a new challenge in her life, a brand new sister. So she's not the only royalty in the family. Or, and she's had a few challenges with that. But I, I bring Lily with me on many of these trips because it reminds me that the work we're doing is really personal, right? The, the most probably compelling reason that I enjoy the work I do and continue to do it instead of finding something else to do is because this work really matters to me. And perhaps there's no more critical challenge than finding that connection to the, the human side, the personal side of the opioid overdose challenge. Opioid use disorder, perhaps more than any other medical condition, is stigmatized in this country 
probably far more than anything else, certainly far more than HIV, which certainly had its heyday for stigma, certainly more than alcohol or tobacco uh, use disorders, certainly more than almost any of the chronic disease conditions, even though some of those which still have a tremendous amount of shame associated with them, this tends to be the most stigmatizing of all diagnoses. I also use the phrase medical condition because this is absolutely a chronic brain disease with a certain set of risk factors, a certain set of elements that are completely beyond the control of the person suffering from it. And here's the hope. It's a medical condition that is absolutely treatable with the right intervention and the right support. It is absolutely possible for people to recover. We're failing Americans as a public health agency, as a medical community, as a health and safety community today because we don't provide those opportunities and pathways to recovery in as adequate a number as they need to be available. But it is absolutely treatable. For that reason, I want us to make this story personal. I want you to remember the people in your life who struggled with substance use disorders, make it personal, make personal connections to people who need our help, really see the human side of this crisis. It's certainly personal for our current Surgeon General. This is Jerome Adams. He lost a brother to substance use disorder, specifically opioids. And you can see his quote here. Um, he uh, is a strong advocate for the opioid response at the federal level, and he sits on the task force that CDC is a part of and advises the, the White House on opioid control policy. So this is the director of NIOSH, John Howard. Some of you've met him. He's certainly been out to Oregon to speak on a number of occasions. He's been at some of the other symposia in the past. He takes a pretty interesting uh, approach that's really guiding our overall institute's approach to this crisis. And that is looking at this as certainly a treatable brain condition, something that can be managed and people can recover from, but also looking at it from another variety of angles. What is it about the way people are employed that put them at risk? What is it about the nature of their job itself that put them at risk? If you chose one occupation versus another, are you more likely to ever get first exposure to opioids or to become uh, dependent on opioids or tolerant on opioids, are you more likely in one job than another to overdose? Well, the answer is absolutely yes, 100% yes. Work seems to be a very strong influencer on these outcomes. So that's another angle that we're looking at this crisis uh, from. And then we're also very much committed to taking this total worker health approach and I will get into a few more details about that, but basically it's this. This isn't a problem that starts in isolation, either at home or at work. It's a problem that begins because oftentimes there's conflict and challenges in both those settings. This is a problem that impacts people on the job and away from the job. You can't think of a more tragic outcome than someone working impaired from opioid use disorder. And then the other part is when it's time to get treatment and get help and recover, it's going to be a very important requirement that people are supportive in the home and work environment to guarantee the success of that person long-term. This is absolutely a work and non-work balance, life balance, interface issue. People don't disintegrate themselves between work and home. We're one person. We're not a work self and a home self. We're one self. And it's critical as we're coming up with solutions here that we consider people in both those domains. So we're gonna talk about why people first start using drugs. We're gonna talk about what's in it for them, what's in it for families and friends, and, and then what happens when it goes wrong, 
and then we'll move on to talk about um, interventions. Some of this research, this is from 2007, there was just an article that came out, a, a journal article in 2019 that, that perhaps turns a little bit of this on its head, but this is sort of a long-standing belief of why people use drugs. To feel good, to feel better, to do better. So performance enhancing, right? Because others are doing it. So there's tremendous social pressure too oftentimes involved. First use oftentimes involves group setting for, for many substance use disorder patients. But the challenge that I mentioned, the challenge to this sort of current status quo that came in 2019, said that a lot of people do not initiate opioids to feel good. That is not the reason people start opioids. In fact, if you're looking for a gateway drug for heroin or fentanyl, for street illicit drugs, the gateway drug is not marijuana. The gateway drug is a prescription opioid. That is how people introduce their bodies to the drug that they become dependent upon. So most people start an opioid in this country from a prescription source, from a legitimate prescription. Now, a lot of people also start it from a legitimate prescription that's diverted or misused or passed along to a family member or friend or purchased on the street, even though it's a prescription quality drug. But a lot of people start opioids because they're in pain, right? And whenever you talk about painful conditions, oftentimes at the root of that is something to do with work, right? People get injured on the job. The job itself is challenging. Half of people report they go to work every day with pain. Wow, that in and of itself is a precursor for, for initiation of opioids and potential for dependence and misuse. So feel good, I would say, is a misnomer. It's, yeah, part of the equation. And oftentimes there is euphoria from use of opioids, right? And other substances as well. But in general, that euphoria in this 2019 journal article specifically says it's fairly short-lived. There is always the drive to seek that euphoria, and that tends to increase dosing to try to get more powerful or more frequently delivered or more efficiently delivered drugs. So that's the pursuit of the euphoria or feeling good related to use, but oftentimes it's not the primary reason. This whole issue of feeling better, I would say, is perhaps more broadly described as escaping from my current reality, right? People talk about use of drugs because they're unhappy with their current circumstances. We believe a lot of the drug epidemic that really caught fire in Appalachia and New England was really related to diseases of despair. This job loss, this economic opportunity, jobs disappearing that had been in their family for generations, think coal mining is a good example, and their economic opportunities and their really hope for a better future. They wanted an escape from that. And we hear anecdotal stories of that again and again. And if you look at where the opioid crisis really flamed up first, it absolutely mirrored those areas that had tremendous economic hardship. So this escapism seems to be a very critical piece that's driving the opioid um, overdose crisis. You can see common substances. I don't know if I would, I mean, this is percent of users of caffeine. Anyone classify caffeine as a substance of abuse? It's interesting. Some people? Well, on, on, on long drives. Yeah. Sometimes on long drives. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, in the workplace setting, we hear people, you know, using caffeine-enriched products all the time to stay awake. Perhaps the most important thing is just to recognize some of the names because we will be coming back to some of them. Naturally occurring means they don't really have a lot of laboratory uh, manipulation or change. So there's not a lot of steps between when the natural product is acquired and when the drug is on the street. Semi-synthetic tend to be the most commonly uh, misused opioids, the semi-synthetics. Synthetic ones tend to be quite, quite dangerous. Fentanyl is getting all of the attention these days, largely because the belief is that when fentanyl arrived on the scene, that's when the huge number of overdose deaths spiked. But interesting at the bottom, can you see carfentanil there? Used in veterinary medicine for sedating elephants. Yeah, 10,000 times more potent than morphine. So talk about grains, just tiny amounts being deadly. This has presented itself as another occupational challenge. Let's imagine that you're a first responder or a policeman or a DEA agent who's entering a scene where these really highly potent drugs are being processed. The possibility for inadvertent exposure to a first responder has certainly been reported. We've investigated a dozen or so um, likely scenarios where people had exposure. Uh, this is a, a rapidly changing area of interest. It also represents the number one reason people visit our website. The fentanyl exposure pages in first responders have six, 8,000 hits a month. Um, it is, is one of the most visited web pages of all of NIOSH's work. So we talk about some of the physiology to the way opioids work, and you can see a number of receptors that are fired here. Opioid receptors are activated both by endogenous, things like our own endorphins, the runner's high is a good example of that, the exhilaration of a, a roller coaster ride might be a good example, as well as exogenous, those that we might take to spike those. There's also this association between the way the drug is delivered and the likelihood of addiction as well. So an oral pill, something that you take by mouth, tends to be slower onset. The distance between taking the drug and any positive effects is oftentimes quite delayed. It might be 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Sometimes if you're using an opioid patch, it's such a low level that there really might be no euphoria, especially after the third or fourth use of the drug. So the way the drug is delivered also strongly influences the rapidity of activation of some of these receptors and how much of a spike. So when these receptors are activated, they release a lot of feel-good chemicals. Dopamine is a good example, right? Serotonin uh, goes up as well. And they have both effects, the analgesia effect, taking away pain, as well as the euphoria effect. You see this part about rapid delivery. That's gonna become important in a number of ways because it's the actual way the drugs are being used that is not only driving the quick onset of misuse and dependence, but it's also driving a number of other public health emergencies. So when there is active drug use in a community, we see spikes in hepatitis B and hepatitis C and bacterial endocarditis because of bacteria being introduced intravenously, floating around the blood system, settling on the heart, causing problems with the valvular function of the heart itself. We see spikes in HIV. I think there were in just a period of a month or so, 19 or 20 new cases in one small town in Indiana of HIV. 
right? Completely changed the epidemiology of HIV in that health region. Important also to think about where all those receptors are. Of course, it would be no surprise that the majority of these receptors for pain and euphoria are in the brain, right? Sort of the, the control system, the central nervous system for these kinds of issues. But there are these receptors throughout the body. The peripheral nervous system is everywhere. So that gives this sort of whole body sensation. In the gut, we see these receptors. And that's most apparent when people are using opioids and have constipation, right? The most common side effect of opioids is constipation. So you see a significant amount of GI side effects because there are receptors for these drugs in the GI tract. It makes sense. What's also interesting here is when people experience withdrawal, they have symptoms in all these regions as well because those receptors are crying out, where is my next dose, right? And those receptors, oftentimes built up and magnified and multiplied because of their exposure. And then they are saying, okay, we're, we're ready for the next dose and it's not coming. You see GI side effects in withdrawal. You see skin, body shakes, sweats, you see pupillary con uh, you know, constriction if, if drug use is on board, as well as just sort of the general uh, malaise, the craving, the, all of the uh, neurological effects of withdrawal as well. The majority of opioid-related overdose deaths are respiratory deaths. They're not dramatic deaths. People don't have a seizure generally. There might be some seizure activity when people become anoxic, when, they, when their oxygen level falls low, but that's not typical. What is typical is people fall asleep and don't wake up, right? So these are primarily respiratory deaths if we're talking about opioids. What drugs would you imagine would not cause that kind of death. Certainly with Xanax, Valium, some of the other benzodiazepines, you would expect a similar kind of death. But the exception would be the stimulants. Cocaine is perhaps the best example. Cocaine overdose death does not usually, uh, is, is not a respiratory death, that's unusual. They tend to be cardiac abnormalities, so cardiac dysrhythmias that lead to death. Seizures are common in stimulant, stimulant overdoses. Very high blood pressure may be leading to a cardiovascular or neurovascular event. So those tend to be the way people die with stimulants. But the majority of overdose deaths, at least looked at nationwide, are opioid-related overdose deaths, and they are respiratory nature. This perhaps, there is a silver lining to this because it is not a cardiac event usually, it's not a stroke, it's not a seizure event. The fact that, it, that respiratory depression also doesn't go from zero to uh, 100, it, it happens gradually. This represents an opportunity to intervene, to actually reverse the overdose and bring these people back to life. And that is what's driving the workplace use of naloxone. That is the emergency rescue drug that some of you may have heard about. It's quite expensive still, but it's easily administered, comes in a variety of ways. The most easy to use is a nasal spray, something like an Afrin nasal spray, but the drug is delivered through a nasal spray, lasts about 30 to 45 minutes and can bring someone back. I both love naloxone and I hate naloxone, okay? You, you understand why I love it. The, way, the reason I hate it is because it's the most tertiary of all interventions you could imagine, right? Can you think of a worse public health intervention than trying, than in the last 
10 or 15 minutes of someone's life trying to, trying to intervene. It is perhaps the most downstream of any public health intervention you could imagine. But yet, in all honesty, it is where a significant amount of our resources are going. Um, it is being used in almost every first responder kid. Police carry it, both for themselves and for the people they stumble upon or, or are called to assist. It is very common for all librarians in the United States and all coffee shops now to have naloxone in place. Why? Because those workers have repeatedly found people in their bathroom in a stuporous condition, blue, cyanotic, almost to the point of death. It's so, you know, downstream. You know, we, we need to be obviously investing way, way more as a society upstream. So let's take a look at national statistics. And these are all from the CDC standard slide set. And we have a great slide set that NIOSH has used CDC material and developed for use in the workplace. I'm happy to send anyone in the room the standard slide set for you to use in your own presentations to modify in any way you want to. These are the latest released national data. There are some more up-to-date reports that are coming out with 2018 and 2019 data, but most of the data I will refer to is the official printed 2017 data. You say, wow, that's so old, it's two years old. It takes a full year for most of the cause of death determinations to be made in many jurisdictions. Toxicology is slow, the determination of death process is slow, and in all honesty, there are no mandates for state reporting of overdose deaths to CDC. So we go out and incentivize and pull and scrape together data sources to get nationally representative data. So that's why you'll see 2017. There are more recent MMWRs. That's the weekly update that CDC puts out sort of for the epidemic late breaking stuff. If you're not subscribed to MMWR and this is your thing, it's a great place to be getting up to the minute uh, information. You can see that about 700,000 people have died from a drug overdose in roughly a half generation. To give you some context, this is roughly the same amount of people who've died from HIV since it was discovered. Now that period would have been a period about twice as long. So it gives you an idea of how quickly overdose deaths are overtaking the HIV epidemic to give you some perspective. So the same number of deaths in a period half as long. Um, you can see now that's all drug overdoses. From opioids, it was about 400,000, the vast majority of those, 700,000, and about 68% of more than the 70,000 drug overdose in 2017 involved in opioid. So uh, a little bit less than that if you look at for the entire period of time, but for 2017, 70% roughly were related to opioids. Now, I will pull aside and say that that is not completely the same in every state across the country. There are some states where the leading cause of drug overdose is a stimulant, is cocaine or methamphetamine related. So while opioids are certainly much of the East, some of the Western states have stimulant-related overdose deaths more commonly, right? So this is variable from region. It's variable from state to state. Even within a state, there can be some quite a bit of differences. So the, the take home message from this is we really need to be thinking about poly drug use, right? About poly drug misuse and, and a number of substance use disorders because they're all interacting. I mentioned the dozen or so field investigations we've done where first responders were potentially exposed and, and became ill from their work. All of those 
I think it's 14, all of those exposures involve more than one drug. Almost all drugs on the street are mixtures of drugs, right? So it's, com it's very uncommon just to see pure heroin uh, involved in someone's overdose death. The most common autopsy shows three or more substances in an overdose death uh, victim. You can also see that, um, that the speed of change, the rate that we're seeing overdose deaths is increasing. So six, in 2017, six times higher than in 1999, and about 130 Americans die every day from an overdose. The number of overdose deaths, 42,000 in 2016 to 49,000 in 2017. Here again, that's opioids only. The spike in other drug use in other states is critical as well. Here's the comparison between men and women. A little bit later, we'll specifically talk about substance use issues as it relates to women. But in general, you can see the crisis has impacted men a little bit more than women. Here's the other thing. In general, the most rampant increases have been in people uh, between 25 and 55, and that is absolutely in the prime of the working years. So the overlap of work and this crisis is quite apparent. Um, we're even seeing really in every age group increases. There's no group that's flattening out where the curve is looking better. I will say that if you look at the 2018 and 2019 preliminary data that CDC has access to now, there are some regions of the country that are seeing a flattening of their overdose death curves. And these tend to be those areas in the country that had the most uh, significant increases in previous years. So they're not necessarily falling, but they're flattening out. Now that's not happening in the Western part of the US. The West has been a bit delayed in the, the overdose crisis. So the, the, now the epidemic is moving westward. We're also seeing a, a bit of shift between rural to inner city. Drug use in inner cities has always been an issue. But largely, the, the earliest sort of spikes in overdose deaths occurred in rural settings, in areas that tended to have lower population. We mentioned New Hampshire, New England, Appalachia, West Virginia, the Rust Belt Midwest that was suffering economically. Those were the areas where we saw the first fires. But now we're seeing a shift back to urban cores where overdose deaths are occurring and a westward shift of the epidemic. This is, is the most dramatic of the curves, and it really shows which drugs are we're following over time and, and which ones are most involved in overdose deaths. And there was something that happened 2013 to 2015 where the arrival of really ultra-dangerous synthetic opioids came on the, on the scene, largely fentanyl. And fentanyl is absolutely responsible for that big spike that you see there on the right. Other drugs, though, as well. Even methadone. You know, we're still seeing quite a few deaths from methadone, a drug that is really designed and used for people in treatment, right? So it can be misused as well. There can be illicit methadone on the street as well. Uh, so it's a very potent um, opioid as well. This gets to some geographic variation that we were talking about earlier. You can see the darker colors either represent age adjusted drug overdose deaths per 100,000 of the population. And then the, on the right, it's just showing the percent change. And clearly, you see, again, those hot spots that we were talking about earlier. Much of the West, a little bit spared, that's all shifting. We're seeing 2018, 2019, that shifting. Let's talk a bit more specifically about this issue among workers. Um, these, the folks that are dying of drug overdose deaths clearly are in the working age population. The vast majority of them are with 
age range, 95%. That's huge. It's basically all, um, all overdose deaths occurred people who are working. And even this statistic cuts off at age 64. You saw there were a significant number of overdose deaths in 65 plus. Many of those people are still working, right? The most rapidly growing segment of our workforce is not people in their 50s or 60s. It's people in their 70s and 80s. That's the most rapidly growing segment of the U.S. workforce, right? So don't plan any retirement anytime soon, okay? Uh, roughly 4% uh, people eight reported illicit opioid use in the past year. Now, what is illicit opioid use? Illicit opioid use is either a street drug, which that's no surprise, but it's also misuse of a prescription drug. That's considered illicit as well. So if you're you know, taking grandma's uh, oxycodone from the medicine counter, that's considered uh, illicit use in this survey. But of those, two-thirds were saying, I'm working at the time I'm using. Two-thirds. So a lot of people think opioid use disorder, well, those people are so out of it that they're just laying on a street corner somewhere, right? Not true. Many of these people are working. Many of these people are in safety-sensitive jobs. We're going to get to the most common employment type of the person who most often dies from opioid overdose, and it may surprise you. 25% uh, is the BLS is reported overdose deaths at work from non-medical use of drugs or alcohol increased by that amount annually between 2013 and 2017. So this is rapidly changing. 2016, 5.3% of occupational injury deaths that year uh, were from opioid overdose. That's compared to 1.8% in 2013. Now, <clears throat> when you hear occupational injury, don't think, well, these people were high and they fell from uh, a roof. The, for BLS purposes, overdose deaths are considered injuries. It doesn't have to be a fall or a motor vehicle accident while high. Just the fact that you have of a drug exposure is considered an injury, and that's how it's classified in this, um, in this statistical report. Perhaps most dramatically, and I think I have a slide, but just in case I do not, let me go ahead and say that in 2016, in Massachusetts, that state only, it has not been seen in any other state, the most common cause of death on the workplace, more than falls from roofs or ladders or motor vehicles, was drug overdose death. It was the most common cause of death on the job. Only in that one state, it's dramatic. Massachusetts has done some of the most compelling analysis of work and opioid interface, we'll get a little bit to that in a moment. For the first time, uh, opioid overdose death is a more common cause of death in the US than motor vehicle crash. Amazing, stark. In general, motor vehicle crashes are the most leading cause of work-associated death, so it would be no surprise that Massachusetts had similar number of overdose deaths. One in 96 people in the nation dying. So, what is it about these underlying social and economic determinants that we've been hinting about before that are really the drivers here? There are some people who believe that originally, maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, perhaps when I was in training, that we were not doing a good job in the medical field of treating pain. So there was this belief that we need to be prescribing opioids more, we need to be treating pain. It was considered the fifth vital sign, right? You would check someone's blood pressure, their heart rate, their respiratory rate, and you would say, what is your pain scale today on a scale of one to 10 or one to five? And if they had pain, you it was incumbent upon you to document, this is what I'm going to do about it. 
Well, the quickest way to manage pain was to write a prescription. So some believe that this early push, both in our training and perhaps to some extent pharmaceutical sales representatives pushing higher use of opioids with the reassurance that if you have true pain, you're really not gonna get addicted. Well, clearly we know that's not the case. In fact, the statistics say about one in four people who use opioids for more than a week are at high risk of having misuse at some point in their life. So it's, it's a fairly small number. Other studies put that estimate maybe down to one in 10, but anywhere from one in 10 to one in four of those people who are, have a fairly short-term exposure go on to have some risk for misuse. So it's pretty significant. We believe that this crisis is far more complex than just overprescribing. We've started talking a lot about those economic antecedent underpinnings. Um, there's certainly this intertwining of prescription use and heroin. Here's a good example. Uh, in 2017, CDC published the prescribing guidelines for opioids. And now almost every state in the nation requires two to four hours of training for all physicians using the CDC guidelines as the basis for that training. So it's basically, if you wanna keep your medical license, you need to have this training that uses the CDC guidelines. Here's the challenge though. Millions of physicians across the country taking this training, saying, oh, we apparently are overprescribing. So all of a sudden, the patients that are coming in are not getting their opioids anymore from the doctor, right? Where do you think they're going to go for those opioids? Yeah, with all of the challenges related to moving from a licit user to an illicit user, right? Licit user is not likely to go share needles with anybody else, right? They're not likely to commit a crime to get their drugs. They're not likely to spend hours and hours of their day searching for uh, the drug and oftentimes quite dangerous circumstances. So you've taken one challenge and turned it into 10 or 12 other challenges for those folks. So some are saying it's the actual intervention of the prescriber treatment guidelines that have driven in large part some of these shifts to more dangerous and deadly use. Quite challenging. I mentioned this earlier, the role of suffering, those diseases of despair, which many people say is at the root of this as well as the suicide crisis that we're also seeing in the nation, who just have no hope for tomorrow, right? So I think that's an important component for us to keep in mind and also to help color our interventions when it comes to uh, recovery and support for workers who want to return to the workforce. Clearly, we believe there was a need for more comprehensive, broader which is far more upstream than what most of the public health infrastructure is talking about now. And really this issue of compassion, uh, of destigmatization, also important. So we've built these things into our program. So what are the drivers when it comes to work? Certainly having no job at all is a risk factor for opioid overdose death. We've clearly documented that. Uh, and it again gets back to where the hotspots of this epidemic were. They clearly match the, the tremendous economic downturn in 2008 and the, um, the high rates of unemployment, high rates of opioid use, misuse, and overdose death. Insecure employment. So you got a job, but it's not one you can count on a couple of weeks from now. See this a lot in construction, right? Seasonal jobs, jobs that are seasonal in fishing, forestry, farming. Those are places where we're seeing a tremendous number of overdose deaths. Here's an interesting one. I have a job, fairly secure, 
but it's so difficult to do the work that I'm likely to report to pain with to work with pain every single day. And it's a job that doesn't have any sick leave benefits. So if I want to get a paycheck on Friday, I'm going to have to get to work whether I feel like it or not. And hey, this pain medicine is awfully tempting to get me to work every day. So no job, an insecure job, a bad job, which could mean one that causes pain from tough working conditions, or a job that predisposes me to injury. Because a very common response to a work-related injury, especially neck, back, shoulder, arm, is an opioid. So those are really strong connections between work and the, the beginnings and continuance of the epidemic. I mentioned lack of paid sick leave, but we see other types of benefits too, just lack of leave in general, lack of supportive employment policies, lack of adequate time off, uh, multiple jobs and people who have this time crunch that also leads to more difficult working conditions. And then we've already hinted at some of the cultural, geographic, and industry and occupation changes that we'll delve into a bit more. If you're not familiar with the National Safety Council's opioid toolkit for workplaces, please take a look at that. You can just Google NSC uh, opioids and, and you'll go right to the toolkit. Here are some of the things they found from a workplace survey. I would take away just a couple of points here. About three quarters of employers say their workplace has been impacted by opioids, but basically less than one in five feel they're prepared to deal with it. This is an opportunity for all of us in the room to help workplaces do better, understand more, and move from tertiary to secondary prevention. That would be like increased screening programs and awareness building, and ideally even to primary prevention, improving job design, improving policies and practices, giving better benefits, being more attentive to safety so people don't get injured on the job, building in more security to employment to the extent it's possible. Here's something interesting. Despite effective treatment, only one in five receive any treatment for opioid use disorder. And that's just sort of marginal treatment. Far fewer receive the gold standard, which is considered patient-assisted or medication-based treatment. It's a great uh, National Academies of Medicine report on medication-assisted treatment. I won't go into a lot of detail about that, but it basically is the way that we're going to reverse this epidemic for people who are already have a substance use disorder. The common language is MAT, medication-assisted treatment, but there was huge consensus on this expert panel that medication is not just an assist, it is the core of the treatment success. So they've, they've recommended we use the term medication-based treatment. This puts it in a, quite a different light than a, a huge number of the other typical interventions, like the 12-step programs, right, that in general talk about abstinence as an important component to recovery. Medication-based treatment sort of turns that around and says the gold standard is to actually have a centerpiece of medication as the escape route for people with opioid use disorder. So I think it's an important distinction that gets to this difference between one in five receiving any treatment, which might be an abstinence program, could be considered some level of treatment, but far fewer than that getting the gold standard. This is an NIH now recommendation, a CDC recommendation, certainly the National Academy's recommendation, that abstinence-only programs are not the gold standard of care for opioid use disorder. Medication, central medication-based treatment programs are the gold standard. That is not unproven, it's not a political statement, it's a scientific fact. If we want people to recover, 
abstinence is not going to be the best route. So we've taken all of those different challenges and put it in sort of this four quadrant approach using sort of the total worker help framework that workers have both home and work challenges and the best solutions are to address challenges in both those settings and be supportive of them in this journey to and through recovery. So we're going to do our research at NIOSH to identify those workplace conditions that predispose people to abuse to determine those risk factors, many of which I've already talked about. We also are gonna do the sort of traditional scientific lab-based work at NIOSH, protecting responders and firefighters, police, some very compelling videos on our website that show using body cam footage, people getting exposed and the symptoms that they receive and receiving naloxone recovery supports. It's quite interesting work being done there. And then we also need to do more to develop better methods for detection and decontamination. We're oftentimes called in to give advice about when is it safe for workers to re-enter a space after it's been massively contaminated with these dangerous chemicals, or how do we protect those workers who have to go in and do the cleanup itself? So we need better real-time detection for that kind of thing. We're working with the LRN, the Laboratory Response Network, to grow the ability to test for exposures in real time, either using saliva, blood, urine. Uh, it'd be ideal to be able to have biomonitoring uh, in all those domains in, in real time. Just a couple of slides on total worker health as we start to wrap up. Why is total worker health that sort of comprehensive, holistic approach in this setting? Certainly the effects of opioid use are not isolated to the work or home environment, especially when we're talking about safety sensitive jobs. Prevention and intervention require solutions that look at home circumstances, personal, family, communities issues, as well as those related to work. And obviously we believe a systems approach is important. So just a quick reminder of what total worker health is. The bedrock of this program is you've got to keep workers safe. It's an obligation that workers go home with all 10 fingers and toes that they showed up with, right? If they're going home with nine, clearly that's not the foundation for total worker health. So at least send workers home with the health they arrived with. That's step number one, but that's not adequate. Workplaces can do so much more than that. And in fact, employers benefit if workplaces do much more than that. The best workplaces do this, and then they also grow health through the three P's of total worker health, better policies, better practices, like supervisory support, supervisor training, recovery-friendly workplace kind of issues, and programs, day in, day out support programs, whether that's better benefits design, whether it's attention to shifts and, and working conditions, whether it's health promotion program opportunities in the workplace, whether it's built environment and settings that allow people to actually take advantage of those programs, whether it's educational programs to say, here are the best five ways you can prevent diabetes. People come to work to listen and follow direction. It's a great opportunity for them to be learning more about personal health and well-being. And well-being is the goal that we're after. One word that we said, if you do all these things, what are we trying to achieve? What is the measure of success? And well-being is what we settled on. And we're defining a number of different ways to, to characterize well-being and measure it in workplaces. So. If you're thinking about a hierarchy of controls that might be valuable in the opioid use disorder risk setting, we're applying that to the total worker health hierarchy of controls. First of all, eliminate those working conditions that would predispose someone to needing an opioid. Make the work safer, decrease injury and illness risk. Substitute better policies for the ones you have now. If you don't have adequate 
employee assistance programs in place, or if you don't have adequate policies around paid sick leave or around uh, health insurance coverage for adequate intervention programs, that would be a substitution. Redesigning the work environment, supervisory support, giving people education about the risks of opioid use disorder, and finally, encouraging personal change. We prioritize these purposefully in this direction. You'll get a lot more bang for the buck if you eliminate a hazard rather than try to clean up that hazard after, afterwards, right? So this is a traditional hierarchy of controls taught in industrial hygiene applied to the total worker health model. We have a much better understanding of those three hash marks there, industry and occupation, surveillance, and workers' compensation partnerships. There is very few data sources that look at this issue. Perhaps the best is the workers' compensation data because it's the one place where you bring together industry and occupation, injury data, which we know is a precursor to opioid use, and here's the bonus, prescription data. So that's one of the few places where you have all three bits of information in one data system. It's been a gold mine for helping us understand these connections. So if you have any access to workers' comp data in your space, certainly I know we have safe folks in the room, a wonderful Total Worker Health affiliate, by the way, um, we would encourage you to mine that space for all it's worth. I mentioned those 14 projects that we're doing with first responders to look at their uh, exposures. Here's what we found. It's difficult to obviously examine those situations retrospectively. We're called in weeks after that event. All the opportunities for monitoring in real time are gone. We're taking body blood that are weeks out, so it's not gonna really show anything. So it's a difficult evaluation to do. We're trying to fix that, maybe think about some tiger teams that would respond more quickly, or first responders in the field with, collect, with data collection tools. So they would have some ways to live the samples if anyone becomes symptomatic. We have methods to detect very ultra low levels of fentanyl, heroin, and other drugs in body fluids. That is a, a huge capability, maybe you know, uh, thousands of times more lowering the level uh, limits of detection of these drugs in, in body fluids. That's gonna be critical if we're going to show these associations. What is known though, is that ill effects were related. People had documented ill effects that were measurable and noticeable and documented by video. And these effects affected their ability to do their work. Now here's the contrary folks who think, absolutely, these folks had a very slight exposure to fentanyl or cocaine or another stimulant, and they suffered these health effects. And here's what happened. Even to the point, some believe that, that they administered naloxone. There are others with a different viewpoint, and they're saying, oh, all these effects that first responders are having are just anxiety, right? They're just people who perceive that they're in a riskful situation, and they're developing these symptoms related to the circumstance itself, and they don't truly represent exposures to these substances? We don't know the answer to that question. So we proposed a research study that will help in real time better determine that. And part of that is having now the testing capability to detect very low subclinical levels of exposures to these drugs. It is important to say this, a small amount of fentanyl exposed to someone who's been using opioids for five, 10 years is gonna have very minimal effect. A dusting of fentanyl for someone who shoots it up daily they're, they're not gonna have any effects. For a police officer who's had no opioid in their system, maybe in five, 10, 20 years, a small amount of fentanyl could have some very, very dramatic effects, even if it doesn't cause respiratory depression. So this is an area of controversy. 
it represents a need to do research. I'm happy to talk about that more perhaps in the panel this afternoon, especially if any of you work with first responder communities. Why do the critics even bring up this? Why do they even question whether or not these workers are having what they would say are true chemical exposures or not? They do that because they're worried that the interventions that someone might put into place, putting on extra PPE, putting on ex taking extra time to make sure the scene is safe, their, their criticism is that those steps would delay their response to the victim on the ground, right? So the harm reduction folks are saying, these recommendations are too onerous, they're too time consuming, they're too difficult. In general, our stance is in a situation of unknowns where the science is not yet settled. We put worker protection at a very high level until those answers are known. You already have one victim. You don't want there to be two victims, right? So the way you do that in an area where the science is still unsettled is you really focus on uh, protecting the worker. Here's the drug I both love and hate, naloxone. We've talked about it can be given nasally to a person suspected of overdose and laypersons can be trained to do it. We've trained more than 150 people in our own institute to be naloxone providers. Both should have happened in our workplace or when they're out at a coffee shop or out at the playground with their kids and oftentimes a family member they're concerned about. So they want to keep naloxone because they're worried about finding a family member who might be overdosed. So we would encourage workplaces to consider this intervention. It is quite downstream when you talk about public health. There have been studies that show that the nasal administration is more effective, and that isn't because the drug works any differently. The drug perhaps works better you know, through injection, but people are more likely to do it if it involves giving it through the nose as opposed to giving someone else an injection. So that is why it is our preference. Yeah. Great question. So what if someone has passed out from a diabetic coma, right? Or a heart attack and you're over here sniffing naloxone up their nose. The good news is there are very, very few reports of any adverse event related to naloxone. It has such a great safety profile that there is no known contraindication to naloxone administration. Now, if you read the package insert, it will say, don't give it to someone who's had an allergic reaction in the past. But the poison control people tell us allergic reaction to, to naloxone is almost unheard of. So, does naloxone though cause a person to go into withdrawal? So, what about withdrawal, right? If you're going to give this drug and rapidly reverse the impacts of naloxone for someone who is really stuporous and not and not alert or dying, then the chances of that are fairly low. In fact, the naloxone has a fairly steady onset over the course of a few minutes. So you don't have this five second or two second, you know, rapid reversal. So in general, that is not common for people to go into withdrawal, but it absolutely can happen. And one of the field investigations that we are now involved in is in a state where someone administered naloxone to an overdose victim. This was a first responder who administered it. And the person recovered and pulled out a weapon and shot the first responder. So that it's not really pure withdrawal, but it's certainly an impact from the delivery of the naloxone. So that's a field investigation currently underway now by NIOSH. It is still the consensus of the community, of the scientific community, that naloxone is an important intervention. 
Um, there are reports of people becoming uh, agitated and violent after naloxone administration. There's no doubt about that. It really does say that, that, uh, that when there's an overdose, it's a 911 event. You want other people there, not just one person giving the naloxone. Any kind of victim should be searched for weapons before or during the naloxone administration. It doesn't change the rules of the game of public safety by any means. Yes, thank you for that reminder. So the question is, with repeat use of naloxone, does the effect of it, does the ability of it to recover wear off? And in general, we don't see that. We don't see a tolerance occurring with naloxone use. An important issue you bring up, though, is one dose of naloxone enough for a victim. And depending on the amount of drugs in their system, it may not be. And even if one drug is enough, because its half-life is much shorter than opioids, its effect may wear off in 15, 20, 30 minutes, and you will need a redose to continue that recovery. So it's a great question, and it certainly has multiple angles to it. If you're interested in a naloxone program in your own workplace, we have a great guide. It not only says these are the questions to consider, but it has some great handouts and educational materials for workers. I would encourage you to take a look at that. I'll quickly touch on some of the data looking at jobs that have the greatest risk. The occupations and industries with the highest risk for drug overdose death was for six occupational groups. Construction had the highest proportional mortality ratio of all job types. If you're a construction worker in this study, you are six to seven times more likely to die of opioid overdose than the average worker. Dramatic. Six to seven times more likely. Also high, extraction. So think miners, oil and gas extractors, those types of workers as well. Seasonal, difficult work, injury prone, sometimes with few benefits like paid sick leave. Food preparation and serving, also higher. Healthcare practitioners and technical occupations. Healthcare support. In general, the lower wage healthcare workers have a significant risk. And then personal care service. These would be the home caregivers, personal care providers, child care providers. Also, the proportional mortality ratio was also significantly elevated for the unemployed or unpaid workers. This is additional work looking at the drugs most frequently involved in drug over deaths, 2011 to 2016. Here you can see those, fentanyl, heroin, hydrocodone, methadone, morphine, oxycodone, all opioids. But then, Take a look. Four others on this top 10 list that are not opioids. The first two are in the anxiolytics, the, the Valiums, the Xanax, also respiratory depressants, remember. And then the last two are stimulants. A different type of death, but deadly nonetheless. And in the West, stimulant deaths are a little bit more common in some jurisdictions than opioids. And then here you can see oxycodone in 2011, heroin in 2015, fentanyl in 2016. And clearly fentanyl 2017, 2018, 2019. Fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. Now it's the medical consensus that if you don't have pain, long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain is no longer recommended. It is not the consensus of medical treatment that there's really any role for chronic use of opioids. Now, that doesn't mean we can reverse that trend overnight, but it does mean that we should be examining for as many alternative ways to treat pain as possible, just because of the tremendous built-in risk <laughs> profile for misuse and substance use disorder. We talked a little bit earlier about women. They have higher rates of chronic pain reported than men, higher rates of anxiety, depression, and disability that might lead to drug use than men. They also have changing opioid use patterns and risks. 
they're more likely to receive a prescription than men. That also increases their risk. Heroin addiction rates in women are now similar, and that's a significant departure from a generation ago. They tend to have quicker onset of addiction at lower dose levels, and that is because of body mass, body size. In general, that increases the faster onset. They also have greater withdrawal symptomatology reported and more frequent relapse when in treatment. Also importantly, they tend to lose their children. Men don't, don't have that same sort of psychosocial risk, right? It tends to be harder for them to find appropriate resources, to find a place to live. When we design interventions and programs, keeping sex in mind, I think, is important. This was the Massachusetts uh, report that we talked about uh, earlier as well. And you're going to see high rates in construction, construction, extraction, and then farming, fishing, and forestry. They have cold water fishing in Massachusetts, huge outbreak of opioid overdose deaths. Some of the uh, heavy lifting jobs like material moving, installation, maintenance, and transportation. They were the first state to show that something as safety sensitive as transportation had high rates as well. They were also the first to report the rate higher among workers employed in industries known to have high rates of work-related injury. No big surprise there. And higher in occupations with lower availability of paid sick leave and lower job security. I'll just close by saying that I believe that there is opportunity here for us to make a difference. There are some great stories of workplace programs that are making a difference. I'm hoping to hear uh, more in this next round of research that we'll be calling for that really does focus on opportunities for workplaces to be part of the solution here, not only make jobs safer, but also help those workers who have a problem get back to work. Thank you. For more resources and information on how your organization can address opioids in the workplace, please visit www.cdc.gov slash NIOSH slash topics slash opioids. Join us for our upcoming Spring Symposium on Friday, May 29th from 9 to 4 p.m. on workplace aggression, preventing relational aggression and bullying. Our Spring Symposium will go into specific lessons and tips for effectively addressing and preventing workplace aggression for all industries. To get more information, you can visit our website, ohsu.edu slash offhealthsci. We have changed this to a web only as of now due to the COVID-19 situation. You're listening to What's Work Got to Do With It, your go-to resource on all things workplace safety, health, and well-being. This has been an episode of our podcast series where we invite you into the conversation as we discuss how our workplace conditions like work hours, occupational stress, job safety, and other issues affect our lives at home and at work. We go into the science behind it all and talk about what we can do to reduce work-related risk and promote well-being. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences and is hosted and directed by Helen Shuckers, Sam Greenspan, and Anjali Ramishbabu. Our mission at the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences is to improve the lives of workers through biomedical and occupational research. Home to over 75 scientists and research staff, the Institute explores a range of questions related to the prevention of work-related injury and disease and promotion of health in the workplace. Do you have an idea for a podcast episode? Want to hear from you on important workplace issues that you would like to discuss? Email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. Subscribe to the Oregon in the Workplace blog 
or our social media channels at facebook.com slash ochealthsci.ohsu or follow us on Twitter at ohsuochealth to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events.